0: I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my
1: telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that
0: people actually listened to it. You... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be
1: cripplingly, poignantly depressing.
0: The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So I always find stuff like this interesting. Bernie Taupin is not nearly as well known as his own music. What I mean by that is Bernie Taupin co-wrote alongside Elton John some of the biggest songs of the past, I don't know, five decades? Up until now, Bernie Taupin has not wanted really any of that attention for himself. He let Elton have the spotlight, and he kind of hung out in the shadows until now. Bernie has released a new memoir. He has an interesting answer as to why now, after all this time, he finally wants a little bit of the attention for himself, and he'll tell you more about his relationship with Elton and how it's changed over the years. Our conversation with Bernie Taupin coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So let's talk about, yeah, big songs by Elton John. There's your song. There's Candle in the Wind. There's this one. Who's the boss? There's a uh, Rocket Man. There's Benny and the Jets. Uh, my favorite Elton John song is uh, the song called "I Want Love," kind of a later Elton song that I really love. It's kind of inaccurate to call those Elton John songs because really they all came from two dudes: Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Bernie is now one of the most renowned pop lyricists of our time. But just five decades ago, Bernie was working on a chicken farm in the north of England, breaking into condom machines for loose change. And then, and you might know this story, he answered an ad in the paper. A record company was seeking talent. He gets paired up with this guy named Reginald Dwight, who goes on to become Elton John. And then, you know, stuff happens. The reason you might not know that much about Bernie Taupin is he kind of wants it that way. He's very private. He hasn't wanted to be in the spotlight at all. And that's why it's so interesting that Bernie has just put out his first memoir. It's called Scattershot, Life, Music, Elton, and Me. I had the opportunity to speak to Bernie Taupin about the book, about Elton, about his his music, and a whole lot more from his home
1: in California.
0: Hi, Bernie. How are you?
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you. And I have to say that listening to that, you just said, I Want Love is one of your favorite songs. Yeah. That's amazing, because I'll join you in that one. I want love, but it's impossible. A man like me, so irresponsible. I think if if I had to pick a top 10, and they'd probably change every day, but two of the songs that are close to the top are uh, I Want Love and Sacrifice. I love that song, I Want Love.
0: I, I love it too. I mean, yeah, I'll, you can apologize to my partner for having to play it around the house all the time. So I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad you, you can talk to her about it. Um, all right. uh, throughout the book, you talk about your relationship with fame. You talk mm-hmm. about how you didn't want to be in the limelight. You talk about what a private person you are. And that's something I've always sort of known about you. So why did you want to finally tell your story here in a memoir?
1: Oh, so many different ways of answering that. But I guess, you know, you get to a certain point in your life. And I mean, the bottom line is that I love to write. I'm a, I'm an observer. I feel like I'm a cinematographer of life. So I like to write prose. I like to write stories. And um, I'm at an age now, I'm 73 years old. I don't feel 73 years old, but... I've I've got to a place in my life that I'm and again I don't want to use the word content because that sort of makes you sound like you've settled down and you've got nothing else to say or do mm. but I'm certainly at a point in my life where I know where I'm supposed to be where the my, in my past I wasn't sure where I was supposed to be I was always on a journey and so I got to a point where I wanted to write about that journey. It's sort of a bit like, uh, you know, Ulysses. You're, you're looking for a way to find a way home. And I, I think of my life as a grand circle. You know, I came from a very simplistic background and I've ultimately ended up in a very simplistic place with real people and a real family. And everything in between, you know, was a journey and an adventure.
0: You, you talk in the book a lot about your, your early days, you know, you know, growing up in a really simple lifestyle, like you mentioned, with your folks. And, you know, gr- growing up in, in England and listening to American radio and listening to American songs on the radio. Why was American music so exciting for you then?
1: Because it told stories in ways that um, classic rock and and uh, basic formatted pop didn't do. And I always wanted to be a storyteller. So the only storytelling songs were American country songs. And I've always said for the last for my entire career that the song that turned me on to songwriting was El Paso by Marty Robbins Out in the West Texas town of El Paso I fell in love with a Mexican girl Uh, When I heard that song I went wow you know you can write stories and have people sing them too And that was always my mantra, you know, all the way through my life. I I wanted to be a storyteller. I didn't understand the process of songwriting or what really a lyricist was. I didn't like to be referred to as a poet. And I loathe it still to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, I just always wanted to be a storyteller.
0: Mm. I mean, that makes so much sense to me. But I got to tell you, as a Canadian reading your book Um, I I got the country music side of things but as a Canadian I was really excited that this was such a mind opening thing for you take a listen to this
1: Tears of Rage
0: Tears of Rage so yeah written by Bob Dylan but from the bands
1: whoa whoa wait a second yeah not just written by Bob Dylan you know give the other guys credit (laughs)
0: Okay, right. So you're right. Think of it as a Bob Dylan song, but the band from their 1960- they made it.
1: They made it their own, man. Uh, I mean, yeah, that right. opening refrain. You arms, those, you know, Levon's toms. That was a band, to me, that's a band song. It's not a Dylan song. You, it's a band you're song. You're going to get you know? my
0: citizenship taken away from me is what
1: you're going to do, <laughs> right?
0: But um, um, the, the, you say that song, in the book you say that song, encouraged me to follow my instincts. What do you mean yeah. by that? Why was, why was that song, why was that album, why was that band so important to because,
1: you? Because, okay, because I was completely a sort of closet country fan. And those, those... That music was the, my sort of baptism into what is now known as Americana, and up to that point, you know, I was writing things that were sort of current, currently in vogue. You know, that was slightly psychedelic. Um, uh, lowbrow, highbrow, you know, whether it was kind of pastiches of Procol Harum and King Crimson and Cream or whatever. But I was writing, Elton and I were writing songs that we were trying to fit into the status quo of the time. And I really wanted to write those songs that had inspired me in the early days, those story songs. And when I heard music from Big Pink, it was like the floodgates opened. It was like manna from heaven. I went, whoa, you know what? I can come out of the closet and write this stuff now. And the minute I heard that, you know, I said, I I drove the bus as far as where we were going recording wise. We went from doing the Elton John Black album. It's a little bit funny. Feeling Which was a very uh, or, or heavily orchestrated kind of uh, pastiche again of sort of all of the things that were current at the time. I mean, it was incredibly original, but we went from that to doing basically our version of a band album. Those guys made it okay for me to think, okay, this is incredibly hip and I want to be a part of this. So that was, that was it for me. Did you know
0: about, did you know with Elton right away, did you feel the connection with Elton who was, who was Reginald then? Did you feel that connection right away?
1: Yeah, we connected over music, um, you know we bonded over music that was the 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 entire thread that kept us together and we both we both enjoyed all kinds of music and we we turned each other onto music so our our connection was completely interwoven by contemporary music and uh I think that's the thing that has sort of all through our career has kept us together we still talk you know when we get on the phone together or get on facetime together now you know he'll he'll tell me about what he's listening to which is mainly sort of current music and he's a great advocate for contemporary artists i'm kind of a basically an old fart i still (laughs) all i listen to is jazz blues and uh, I'm I'm a huge jazzer. That's basically all I listen to. Right. And I listen to Mel Haggard and uh, Lefty Frizzell and the Louven Brothers still and Loretta Lynn and I love that kind of era of music. I love and that he's
0: it, I love that he's getting on saying, Hey, have you heard this new Dua Lipa song? And you're going, Have you heard Mama Tried? Now, <laughs> and no one changed my mind, but Mama
1: tried. Yeah, well, we both know what each of those are, you yeah. know, but, but that's great because all of that, when you say that Dua Lipa, you know, you mentioned that, I mean, that's, those are things that are keeping our music alive. Every, every decade, our music comes around again in some other form.
0: When did you know it first? Like, for people who don't know and uh, by now, um, the, the process is, is an interesting one. You would, you would write the words, and, and Elton writes the music separately, I believe in separate rooms. Um, yeah. Um, what was the first piece that you wrote together-ish that made you think, okay, we got something here?
1: That would be a song called Skyline Pigeon. Great song. Turn me loose. which was um, on our very first album, Empty Sky. That was the first song. At, because it, in the early, early days when we first got together, we were sort of torn between two worlds because this was Reg Dwight before he became Elton John. So we were, um, we were jobbing songwriters. We were signed to the Dick James Music Publishing Company to write songs for middle-of-the-road artists who were current at the time. I mean, people like Engelbert Humperdinck or Tom Jones or Scylla Black, Lulu. And we were trying to do that in order to just make our paycheck every week. But at the same time, you know, we were experimenting on the side with a different kind of music, which was, again, du rigueur of like all of the current, Um, psychedelia and pie in the sky and lemonade lakes you know we were just doing all of that also and then suddenly a a guy came along to Dick James Music a guy by the name of Steve Brown who sort of said to us you know forget this middle of the road crap quit doing that start writing for yourselves and start recording for yourselves and we go well what do you mean and he goes well you know reg you need to be the the singer here you need to be the one making the records you're the one cutting the demos and then uh, obviously you know reg Dwight became Elton John and we started we started making records you know we had a couple of wobbly start the first the first single that we ever put out was a an atrocious piece of middle of the road crap Close up. And then after that, we we wrote a song called "Lady Samantha," which uh, the BBC kind of took to, and it was our it was our kind of blue touch paper. We it, it gave us some notoriety. And then Elton put a band together And started performing And then we wrote this song called uh, Skyline Pigeon yeah. But it was the one song that we went Yeah, th- this is this is the direction we should be going in For just this skyline pigeon dream
0: Are there other versions of the songs in your mind? Like, is there an alternate Goodbye Yellow Brick Road with a melody in your mind before you hand it off?
1: No. Mm. No, I mean, at, at the point in time that I was writing things like that, I was purely just putting pen to paper and writing lyrics without any thought of of melody in mind. I mean, much later on, you know, I started writing lyrics uh, with a guitar. Uh, But back in the early days, no, I just wrote stream of consciousness. You know, in the early, early days, I didn't even know what the formulation of a, a lyric really was. I didn't know that you wrote like a couple of verses and then... An extended bridge or what have you. So, uh, it was a gradual process over the years learning to write in different ways. But I never, I never try and sort of tell Elton, you know, this is a melody I had in mind. I just present what I present. And sometimes, you know, obviously, what you write dictates the kind of song it's going to be. I always say, you know, if you write a Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting lyric it's not going to be a ballad (laughs) if you write uh, "Don't don't let the sun go down on me that's going to be it dictates itself as a sort of power ballad Uh, Daniel probably goes, Oh, this is kind of a mid mid range kind of song, you know, mid tempo. So, a lot of the time, you know, the lyric itself dictates what kind of uh, melody ultimately you're going to end up with. Goodbye, Norma Jean. No, I never knew you at all. You had the grace to hold yourself, but those around.
0: One of the biggest successes you've had is Candle in the Wind. And it's one of your best-selling singles ever. But in the book, you write that Marilyn Monroe wasn't your first choice for the song. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: <laughs> okay, well, the title, Candle in the Wind, came to me first. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a book called Candle in the Wind about the gulags in Russia. And I always thought, I mean, it's was, it was a little book, tiny book but a brilliant one. And I just thought the title was phenomenal. I thought, what a great title, Candle in the Wind. It sounds like something that should be written about somebody whose life was cut short in their prime. And then added to that, at the same time, I'd seen a movie called The Misfits, that John Huston directed with Clark Gable, uh, Montgomery Clift, and Marilyn Monroe. Combine these outstanding talents in a shattering story of people caught in a flood of emotional cross-currents. And the result is The Misfits. And I'd always loved the movie because it had a sort of cowboy element to it. And I liked the characters. The only character I didn't like was Marilyn Monroe because she was always bitching about animal cruelty. And I thought Montgomery Cliff was such a cool cowboy. And then, you know, Montgomery Cliff passed away you know, at a young age. And I thought, okay, well, I like his character. I'm going to write the C- Candle in the Wind song about Montgomery Clift. And after some thought, I thought, uh, maybe, you know, Montgomery Clift is not the best choice if you're going from a commercial uh, if, if you're going for some sort of commercial appeal maybe Marilyn Monroe might be a better idea because she's more iconic in the minds of the masses and she's more of the sort of fragile flower you know the blowing away in the wind like a candle in the wind and it seems to me you lived your And ultimately, obviously, everybody thought that I was a huge fan and I became the possessor of all of this god-awful memorabilia that people would What do
0: people send you? People send you Marilyn Monroe stuff. What do people send you?
1: Everything. You know, lobby cards, posters, books. I mean, Elton himself sent me a huge uh, dress-form mannequin that all her dresses were made on that was in a... uh, Purse, you know, one of those big boxes, you know, with flashing lights and the whole thing. And, you know, my house ended up looking like Joe DiMaggio's basement, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I hate to disappoint people, but yeah, I, I was never a big Marilyn Monroe yeah. fan. I just, but uh, the song worked out as a testament for, you know, live fast, die young, leave a beautiful corpse.
0: In the book, you write, the cocoon of fame would kill me. What do you what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I couldn't I couldn't live the life that my partner, my musical soul brother has lived and still remains to live. I mean, he's he's probably one of the most recognizable people in the world. He's a person that can't walk down Main Street America or Main Street anywhere in the world and not be recognized and not be mobbed. There's a certain level that you become so famous that people just won't allow you to live simply and live in a simplistic way. And he's one of those. And I couldn't do that. I mean, I just, I've never wanted to be in the limelight. I'm not by any means a sort of Howard Hughes character, which some people, some (laughs) people, you
0: don't have uh, tissue boxes in your feet right now or anything like that. No, no. And
1: it's (laughs) not like I'm not Greta Garbo. I I don't, I just want to be left alone. You know, I, I'm, I'm a social guy. I don't mind getting out there and doing what I have to do, but I like to be able to go home on my own at night. I, I don't have a staff. I don't have people working for me. You know, I'm just a regular guy next door.
0: I love how my idea of Howard Hughes is tissue boxes on your feet, which 100% comes from The Simpsons, by the way. That's a little bit of my conversation with Bernie Toppin. Let's listen to one of Bernie's favorite songs he co-wrote with Elton John. This is called Sacrifice.
1: It's a human song.
0: Cold, cold heart comes from i didn't know that that is a uh, elton john with the song written by elton john and bernie toppen jeez I'm, I'm learning a lot here today in this conversation with bernie toppen i'm tom power more q after this you got your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. What you're listening to right now is uh, Dua Lipa and Elton John in a song called Cold Heart, which is sort of a combination of four songs. Written by uh, my guest today, Bernie Taupin, alongside Elton John. Uh, you're in the middle of my conversation with Bernie Taupin. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it's worth repeating. Bernie Taupin, for having co-written all those big hits, really craved a more private life. But, you know, it doesn't mean he didn't party. Bernie's new memoir doesn't shy away from talking about what he and Elton got up to when they were at their most famous. You know, the world travel, the the luxury, all the famous people that they met but also the drugs that they took. And he talks a lot about the toll that the drugs took on their work and their relationship, and I was curious to find out a little bit more about that. Also, I I want to give a bit of a spoiler here. I got to talk to Bernie about a time he had in Toronto in the mid-'70s recording an album that never saw the light of day, and you're going to hear that a bit later. Here's more of my conversation with Bernie Toppin.
1: She packed my bags last night, free flight Zero hour, nine AM, and I'm going to be high
0: as a kite by then. I think that that theme of like these these brief windows of of good moments and then challenges comes up a lot in the book like especially when it comes to the way you write about drugs in the book and you write about when you were in France in the late 70s I'll just quote you here there were too many cooks in the kitchen an ever-increasing amount of drugs and a severe lack of communication between the two of us uh, you you and Elton what was what was happening in your lives then
1: Well, we weren't on a dual course. Um, You know, the thing is, our bouts with narcotics sort of didn't necessarily always exist in the same time frame. Although we both were severe and chronic users at different times and sometimes at the same time. But that particular uh, time period you're talking about there was when Elton was living in Paris and I had visited him and we were trying to sort of reconnect after a brief separation as far as songwriting yeah and um but unfortunately he was in pretty bad shape and was very much a night owl and was working late at night you know because unfortunately drugs carry you through into the late pm and um he just wasn't he wasn't working in his best in uh, his best capacity um he was just hammering out lots of meandering sort of melodies that he was saying oh can you write something to this and do something to that which wasn't the way that we worked in general and it wasn't a successful uh way of working so So it was just a, it was a chronically unpleasant period of time seeing what number one, seeing him in, in that dire straits. And at the same time, not being able to create anything of any memorable quality at all.
0: Right. I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, because to the world at that time, um, he was Elton John. He was, you know, this the, the king of this, the great savior of, of popular music, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, so therefore that kind of lifestyle and that that is very romantic to the press and to the world around Elton John. But to, to you, he was your buddy. He was your buddy you knew as a kid. It, it couldn't have been easy to see
1: no it wasn't you know it was it was very debilitating mentally and physically and at that particular point in time it just drained everything out of me i remember being in paris at that time and not being able to enjoy a city that i normally really really enjoyed but that's that's life that's the way it goes you know you have your ups and downs and that was just one particularly dark period and there were several dark periods but by equal terms, there were so many great times, But you know.
0: But I know, and I know of all people, you know people who have been in artistic partnerships and were never able to get past it. You know, something, something went down like that, or there was a split, or there was, you know, and they never, ever got back together. And, right. you know, I know that, you know that. It didn't happen to you and Elton. Why not?
1: Because our partnership was too deep. It came from a much, much deeper uh, place. I mean, in the early days, we were literally joined at the hip. You know, we were it was me and him against the world. Yeah. Everything that we wanted to achieve, we achieved on our own terms. We did it together. We were inseparable. And. We were family. We were like brothers. He was like my elder brother, and I was his younger brother that he never had and always wanted. And so it was going to take something a lot, lot worse than these, you know, brief encounters with narcotics or alcohol or depression. It was going to take a lot more. Than that to tear us apart. I never, ever in our career, in all of his, you know, uh, probably, you know, uh, people want to say his mood swings, his anxiety, his craziness, I never, it never, ever crossed my mind to disassociate myself with it. It just was never on the, that playing field, it was never in the cards. I was never going to desert him and he was never going to desert me. And if we needed to take uh, a a little bit of a break, you know, just to re recharge our batteries, so be it. But we never we never fell out. We never argued. You know, w- the the temporary split that we had was just a an agreed upon temporary break. I
0: mean, that's a that's a beautiful answer to that question and this is a beautiful relationship you guys have. But before I, we have a just a couple more questions if you got the time here. I wanted to talk a little bit about Canada again. Um because in 76 you went to Toronto to record a record <laughs> known yeah. as The Little White Wonder. Talk to the me a little, little bit about wonder. The Little White Wonder. Tell me a little bit about that and and also like why you wanted to put yourself out there with your own music.
1: Oh, I think I was just bored. I mean, and everybody, (laughs) I think it's as simple as that. And everybody was like making their own albums. You know, it was just the thing to do at the time. And that was a particular crazy point in my life. And the reason we went to Canada was I think somebody in their probably wise assessment of the times thought, well, let's get him out of L.A. and probably, (laughs) you know, put him into greener pastures and you know he won't get into so much trouble which you know they had completely wrong because i think as i put it in the book i i laid waste to toronto like the visigoths sacked rome you know? <laughs> i did i love um, that line <laughs> everything everything was just a crazy ride at that that particular point in time i was well I was having a lot of fun but I and I I was a lot of fun to be around but but I was completely wasted the entire time. I mean I'm surprised I even remember any of it. But it it was dang it was fun. It was it was a moment in time like so much in my life, you know. There are things that you want to try, and I, I'm a great believer. And if you want to try something, try it. And if you fall on your ass, it's okay. You know, you get up and you try something else. Well,
0: I mean that that sort of that sort of wraps up the book, really. You know, just just kind of keeping on, keeping on, and, and trying things out. And... Well,
1: it's it's a journey, man. It's it's a, that's why I wrote the book now because I've come to the end of my journey. i have still got lots of stuff to do. But the stuff that I've got to do isn't part of that story. that that the story is in the book, and that's the journey. That's the Odyssey. That's Ulysses.
0: Oh, oh, but okay, but most people don't get to write a book like that. Like most people live their lives and they don't get to like write it down and be able to look at it. With the case of audiobooks, sometimes people get to like read their lives out loud.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you learn anything new about yourself, about your journey? about this whole ride you've been on <laughs> through writing this book
1: well writing the book i found out that my memory isn't quite as bad as i thought it was <laughs> you know when you're actually writing you suddenly become much more aware of your life and as you're writing you you kind of mentally reconnect with the past and um no i i'm Incredibly satisfied with this book. It, it's something I really needed to do. It's one of the most accomplished things I think I've ever done in my life and yeah. my career. And I've got it all down there, and and that's very very satisfying.
0: Did you send it to Elton?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, he read it. You know, months ago, he was probably the first person to read it. Once I got the galleys, the advanced, you know, copies of it.
0: I love that man. I love. I love that you guys are still buddies. You know, you're not Phil and Don Everly. You know, shaking hands in the parking lot.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, there's a lot of them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Believe me. Yeah.
0: You're not Sunny Terry and Brownie Dee. You know, uh, yeah.
1: You know, the rock. Uh, vista is is absolutely littered with people that just can't stand each other and play in the same bands, and I feel sorry for them. You know, I never want to be in a band anyway because. You ultimately always end up falling out, so yeah.
0: I love yeah. that you guys are still buddies. It makes it warms my heart. it really does. How oh, uh, good. Bernie, thanks so much for your time.:
1: Thank you so much, and uh, big shout out to Canada. I got a taste of love in a simple way, and if you need to know while I'm still standing, you just fade away. Don't you know?
0: a sign of maturity if you can get into the fun dance Elton John stuff like I think when you're a younger like more serious music listener you're like you know I like for me at least it was like I like the serious stuff I like his like piano ballads but fun dance club Elton John rules that is Elton John and I'm still standing with lyrics written by my guest on the show today Bernie Taupin Bernie has written the words of some of the biggest pop songs of the last 50 years you just heard my conversation with Bernie who's written a new memoir called Scattershot Life Music, Elton, and Me. That book is out now. All right, that is it for the show today. I'm excited for you to hear the show tomorrow. It's going to be this artist. Take a listen to this. Song originally by the Rolling Stones called Wild Horses. Tomorrow in the show, you're going to hear from the artist Alyssa P., who took songs like Wild Horses and songs by artists like Metallica and Cyndi Lauper and translated them into Inuktitut. And she'll be here to talk about why she wanted to do that. You'll hear that conversation with Alyssa P. tomorrow. We'll see you then later on. Well,